CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I certainly don't have to tell any of you out there, it's St. Patrick's Day, which is really a a very big day here in Georgia. And in just a few minutes, we're going to actually get an on-the-ground report from Margaret Coker, who's joining us today and uh, tells us she is right at the place where they're staging for the major St. Patrick's Day parade uh, in Savannah. And we'll get to that in a minute as I introduce the panel. But I have a little St. Patrick's Day story that I really want to share with you all. I make my claim uh, to Ireland uh, through marriage. My wife, Janice's great-grandfather, was the chief rabbi of Cork, Ireland, uh, Abraham Brzezanski. Uh, The reason I mention all this is because people don't think about Jews in Ireland, and yet there was a population of anywhere from three to 5,000 Jews in Ireland at the time that Rabbi Brzezanski was there. He and his family, like a lot of the other Jews who settled in Ireland, came from Lithuania, escaping the pogroms. And there's a story that has it that um, they really were headed for New York, But for one reason or another, when the ship they were on came to uh, Cork, they disembarked. Maybe they heard Cork and thought they heard New York and got off. But anyhow, we visited the synagogue that he used to preach at and the uh, cemetery in Cork where uh, the Brzezanski family is buried. So that's my small uh, connection uh, to Ireland. Uh, That said, let me introduce the rest of the panel. Um, We're very happy that... Bernard Fraga is back with us, politi- uh, political science professor at Emory University. Bernard, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. As I mentioned in our kind of pre, uh, pre-call discussion, my son is named Patrick, so he's extremely excited. He doesn't quite know what's going on, but everyone's saying his name, and he's happy. <laughs> We're also joined by Karen Owen, politi- a political science professor and the director of the Thomas B. Murphy Center for Public Policy at the University of West Georgia. Hi, Karen. Nice to have you back. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm afraid I don't have a connection to the Irish. <laughs> Okay, we will not hold that against you. Um, We're joined for the first time today by George Sheedy, who uh, has been a longtime journalist in Atlanta. Most recently, he's been writing about crime and politics for the Substack newsletter, The Atlanta Objective. How are you, George? Thanks for being with us. It's good to be here. Uh, It's the first time. I'm excited. Well, (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. all right, Margaret, you are down there in Savannah. We should re- uh, tell people who don't know, Savannah is really ground zero for St. Patrick's Day celebrations in uh, Georgia. The parade there has always been a very big deal. I remember back in the day t- when Thomas B. Murphy was Speaker of the Georgia House, he tried to get the session ended in time for him to get down to Savannah for the St. Patrick's Day parade. What's going on outside your house right now, Margaret? 
Yeah, I, I live in the historic downtown, and the parade is mustering a block away um, from from my front door. And so there's been marching bands um, walking by uh, since before eight o'clock this morning. You know, it, everyone is really excited for for um, the celebrations to kick off again. It's been two years because of COVID, and it's been um, you know it's been a tradition here for 198 years. Um, the Irish American population of Savannah is venerable and incredibly proud of of its ties. You know, the parade started as a way to promote um, Irish um, pride at a time in America where um, Irish Americans were were looked down upon, um, quite frankly. And so now the parade, for those who haven't been here before, the parade um, has all of our historic Irish American families who march. Um, Multiple generations of families are marching, but it's also a very big deal in a political year because local politicians also get a chance to glad hand and um, to, to show um, to show their stuff in front of a huge audience. Absolutely. Uh, I, did I, in, it's, I was so eager to hear you talk about St. Patrick's Day. Did I mention that you are the editor-in-chief of The Current, a digital news publication that people can find at thecurrentga.org? Uh, Margaret, we're very happy you're with us. All right, let, let's get started on the political topics for the day. Um, and, and I want to start with uh, the budget. Um, Governor Kemp yesterday signed the mid-year budget. And, and let's just point out to people that the legislature looks at two budgets every year. The big budget, uh, which is the uh, document that usually is approved at the very end of the session and which essentially sets spending for the entire year. But when they come back, for the start of a new session, they have a budget, a mid-year budget, where they make adjustments to it based on revenues and whether things are going as well as they had hoped. This year, Margaret, the mid-year budget actually adds $3 billion over uh, the original budget because revenues have been coming in at such a remarkable pace. And Margaret, that kind of thing does not often happen with a mid-year budget. Right, but this is also a a big political year, and uh, it is one of the powers of incumbency, right? I mean, Governor Brian Kemp, who is facing um, a really tough gubernatorial primary in May, is is um, is using the power of his office to to show Georgians um, just how grateful he is um, to be a Georgian, and um, the you know laying down the markers to help him garner more votes. Um, I think ahead of May twenty fourth. That's pretty much what I see this is all about. Uh, um, so there are going to be big expenses. Karen, um, there's going to be raises for K through 12 teachers and for university uh, professors, teachers, and others in the university system. So you're one of those who will benefit from this. Some law enforcement uh, officers in the corrections department are getting raises um, and and on top of all that, this budget includes, Karen, a $1 billion income tax cut that will essentially go to everybody in Georgia, $250 uh, for a an individual filing and I think $500 for uh, a, a couple or a family uh, filing. But, but here's my question, Karen. It, it is a political year budget, an election year budget. But to what extent, and I don't know that we have data on this, but to what extent do voters reward those who offer these kinds of uh, benefits in an election year? 
So I'm not sure that I know the exact data on whether voters are actually looking at what's coming through on the budget numbers. But I would say that in an election year, politicians pay particular attention to their constituencies and those that they know are turning out to vote. Um, Historically, here in Georgia, we know that teachers have had a very powerful influence on who is elected as governor. And so Brian Kemp made a promise in 2018 that he would provide bonuses and raises to the K-12 teachers, which they are still waiting on, and they're going to get that $2,000 bonus in this. For the state employees, um, yes, as a university employee, I'm included in that. But I think we also have to remind our listeners and everyone in the state that since 2010, the state has had a lot of reductions because of recessions and things that they had to pull back in the state budget. And so employees were not provided raises. This is making up for some of that. Um, Also to address high turnover that's happened in state government, where through the pandemic, people have left state government and taken private sector jobs, which were available in the state. So voters will pay attention, especially if this tax refund comes at the right time in the next few weeks, right, where they'll see a little bump, maybe go out and be able to spend it. It can be helpful. It's just also, too, you know, what's lasting? Can we continue to see the growth in the state through the budget where we can add some of these supplemental pieces back in and reward those that are working or, you know, providing jobs to you in the state. Bernard? Yeah, you know, I agree with Professor Owen. I mean, I think that this is in some ways a kind of perfect political opportunity for the governor. You know, facing a primary challenge from the right, uh, he's able to say, look, I'm giving people a, a refund, right, a tax credit, you know, in this important election year. But on the other hand, he's able to also you know, defend his record and say that he's kind of, you know, moving a little bit more to the center of moderate by increasing the budget and funding, especially for teachers and for, you know, university faculty. So I think that in many ways, you know, this kind of checks all the boxes for the way that the governor wants to portray himself. And again, this very important election year. Yeah, uh, George, I, I think it's important to point out, George, um, that uh, this may have some election year benefits for the governor, but it is also true that uh, I don't think many people would argue with uh, increases for in, in some of these areas for salaries are a, a bad idea. And, George, we should remember that uh, Governor Kemp, when he ran for election the first time around, promised teachers a $5,000 pay hike, and this will complete that promise, George. So the irony here is that we're—I don't think we're being cynical enough. Um, yes, there's going to be there's going to be spending that's going to be politically popular, but there's spending that is necessary from a policy perspective that isn't happening, even though we've got a bunch of money. Um, there's a huge problem with the Georgia prison system. Um, the murder rate in the prison system has increased sevenfold. Probably more, we can't tell, because nobody in the prison system is being forthright about what's actually happening in there right now. The budget increases prison salaries, like for for wardens, guards, by $5,000 a person like it does for everyone else. But that's not actually enough. Uh, it's not enough to attract... Uh, you know, employees from going to work at Walmart where they'll actually make more money. Um, the, uh, the thing is, there are no votes for spending money on prisons because, you know, 
people don't seem to care that 50 people have been murdered in a jail cell in the last 12 months. Um, so, by the way, George, we should uh, just a, a, a minor correction. Uh, <clears throat> the raise for uh, the corrections officers is like a seven thousand dollars. They're getting a bit more than other employees of the state. Uh, the governor also, as long as you mention prisons, though, Margaret, he's uh, put something like four four hundred thirty or so million dollars into a plan to buy a private at buy and build a private uh, prison. He says that's because they want to replace the rundown and dangerous facilities, Margaret. Yeah, Georgia prisons um, are, have, have a terrible reputation. You know, I um, was covering the state murder trial for Greg and Travis McMichael and Roddy Bryan, of course, who were convicted of murdering Ahmad Arbery. The, um, the plea deal that the McMichaels were trying to get from the federal authorities was to serve time for a hate crime sentencing in federal trials instead of Georgia state prisons. Everybody knows that that is a terrible place to be behind bars and serve your time. Everybody knows who works there. That's a terrible place to work. Attrition is horrendous. Um, there's also, I think, an enormous amount of controversy within policy circles, um, public safety uh, experts about the need or desire to have to privatize prison systems across America. There's a lot of, of um, literature and policy studies out there that show um, show that it privatized prisons might be great for the company that runs that prison, but isn't so great for communities. It isn't so great for um, recidivism. It isn't so great for a lot of other metrics that that, um, Georgians should think about and care about. Um, Just a couple more notes about the budget before we uh, move on. Um, uh, uh, Karen, when I mentioned that they're putting more money into schools, uh, the mid-year budget actually calls for new spending of $390 million for K-12 through schools. But that's not an increase in spending. That, in fact, is restoring spending cuts, mm-hmm. which the legislature made at the beginning of the pandemic because they were concerned that revenues were going to slow down dramatically, right? Yes, that is true. And I was going to also say, you know, historically in Georgia, the governor's budget for the big budget, they have done a pretty conservative estimate of what they're going to spend in the hopes that the revenue will remain high so that they can come in and have these mid-year budget adjustments where they can actually go back in and fund um, additional projects. And really, for a long time, even under Speaker Murphy and our other appropriations chairmen, this is an excellent time in this mid-year and supplemental to fund some pet projects back home and see that you were giving back to your district. I think it is important, yes, here to see that there is money going back in to restore education. There is increased money for Medicaid, which will be central to both gubernatorial um, candidates or really all of them in the discussion of Medicaid funding. And if we see the state budget, really what we see is the importance of how education and health care consume our resources. And the governor and the legislature at this point are having to address that right now, midpoint, mid-year in this budgetary time, as well as they'll be putting it into the big the big budget later. Uh, George, another quick note about the budget, and to put it in the context of the election year, um, uh, Governor Kemp has uh, these big income tax cuts he's putting in place. But uh, when David Perdue announced he was going to run for the Republican nomination for governor, he said he was going to completely eliminate uh, the income tax in Georgia, George. We've heard this before. 
it's never going to happen. Um, and, and it's, it's pandering. It's just pandering to the electorate. <laughs> like, and, and here's the thing. I actually think that the public is perfectly aware that it's pandering in exactly the same way that the the fair tax folks would go on and on and on. There's a small constituency of conservative, mostly Republican voters for whom this is exactly what they want to hear because it's the reason they're Republicans. And for the rest of us who actually want, you know, a functional government, we'll, you know, it's noise. Uh, Bernard, it does see, feel as if this promise to eliminate the income tax, as George said, is uh, uh, wishful thinking. Well, you know, I think for Purdue, he's trying to find room. He needs to find room politically to maneuver, to, you know, show that he's more conservative than the governor, something beyond just, you know, the kind of election uh, situation, controversy, whatever we want to call it, the fraud allegations brought by, brought by the former president. So, I mean, he has to do something and, you know, saying going to get rid of the state income tax is one possible maneuver. But I agree, it's highly unlikely, and it would be a very, very, very large shift in terms of the way, you know, the government operates and the, the room the, the state government has to operate, of course, as well. Margaret, I think the figure, if you eliminate the state income tax, is a loss of revenue of, I think it's $14 billion. I'm not sure if you have that figure, but I think I'm pretty close to what the estimate is. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have that figure to double um, double check you, Bill. But I think that is about right. You know, there there is there are a, there's a lot of of issues that both conservatives and progressives, Democrats and Republicans, both know that need to get funded. You know, it's it is there is there, we need funding for public schools. We need funding for public safety. We need funding for our roads. We need funding for. Um, for the men and women that that actually uh, go out and and help us um, have safe elections, you know, there's it's there's one thing to to want to be parsimonious and one thing to have balanced budgets, it's, and it's another thing altogether to say that we're not going to have a healthy tax base in order to have a functioning government, like like George said. Um, Lawmakers are, are also in the process of voting for an increase of their own salary. I mean, I'm sorry, that, that, those two things just don't go hand in hand, do they? Lawmakers need to be professionals. They need to get paid to do their jobs. And I think that civil servants across the state of Georgia also deserve to have the amount of money necessary to do a professional job for the rest of us citizens of Georgia as well. So let me be sure I understand. You're, we talked about this on the show yesterday, and I think the panel agreed that um, although, you know, raises for elected officials are never generally popular out there, uh, it isn't as if we, members of the legislature are making a lot of money for the amount of no. work they do. You're saying the same thing, right? I am saying the same thing. I mean, if we are going to have yeah. a professional government and professionalized civil service class, we need to pay them at, at a wage that is um, commensurate with experience and with talent. And we see that when it comes to um, the men and women who are on our Board of Regents for, for the state education system. We see that when we're talking about the men and women who, um, who are, are managing the state's money, pension funds. We see that when we're talking about um, the lawyers that go to work for government, right? So why can't we have that trickle down? Why can't the trickle down economic theory work for the rest of the civil servants that actually have face-to-face -face interaction and help each of us normal Georgians um, also have a productive and healthy life? Okay. Um, 
Let's move on, uh, if we can. Uh, Bernard, uh, we've already talked about David Perdue, so let's talk a little bit more about him and his campaign, especially uh, since Perdue uh, has now had this uh, trip down to uh, Mar-a-Lago, where he um, raised some money with Donald Trump's help down there. Uh, Bernard, I I don't think there's any question that right now uh, Perdue's campaign is uh, really, uh, it needs a kickstart. He has raised very little money compared to Governor Kemp, who is cash rich at this point. Uh, Brian Kemp is buying TV time and reserving TV time by the millions of dollars. Um, And the polling that we've seen, and it is still a bit early, May 24th is primary date, uh, puts uh, Purdue behind by anywhere from like eight, nine to as much in the Fox poll as 11 points. What do, you, what do you think about where the Purdue campaign stands now and what they have to do in the weeks ahead? Well, I think you're absolutely right that they're in some <clears throat> trouble, and they understand that. Uh, you know, the polling that we've seen does put Purdue behind Kemp in the gubernatorial primary, the Republican primary, but, you know, a lot of voters are still undecided. They're making up their minds. But, you know, at this point, he's kind of looking for, I think, you know, a Hail Mary of some sort, you know, some kind of international event or national event or state-level event that would really shift the dynamics of the race. And unfortunately, given the kind of, um, you know, alliances that he's tried to forge, the support that he's getting from the former president and others, you know, the situation with Russia and Ukraine is just not going to be very helpful, I think, um, to Purdue, you know, given his ties to, you know, to former President Trump and given former President Trump's kind of controversies related to Russia and other things. So, you know, I think that this is a difficult moment for the campaign. I think there's no question of it. But there's, you know, obviously still a lot of time left before the primary. A lot of voters who have yet to make up their minds. And again, you know, this is going to come down to who votes. And if he can really excite a kind of base of Trump supporters to show up in the primary and, and Kemp is unable to, to persuade his kind of general election base to vote in the primary, then, you know, the polls could be, you know, frankly, uh, incorrect um, just in judging who's going to show up. So Bernard makes a lot of great points there, but I would say that, you know, to remind us that the reason why David Perdue seems to be in this race is because Trump wanted him in this race, and he's running on the fact, right, that he's that Trump candidate, and it's because Brian Kemp and others in our state did not get involved enough in the 2020 election results. And so right now, the campaign leading into May 24th, if the Purdue campaign is really going to energize others to come over he's really having to start to pivot some messaging i think that's why he's talking taxes he's talking about some of this even though it may not sound in his wheelhouse of his business experience but to be going after the rivian state decision you know and the state investment over in that piece he's been talking about the buckhead piece um i think he's having to try to find some issues that he can continue to talk about because if not, he's just going to stay in this, you know, Trump voter lane, which is only going to garner about 20, 25 percent into that primary. And can that be translated if he can move ahead to, over Kemp, to overcome Kemp? You know, George, there is a, there is an irony about uh, about Purdue uh, seeking Trump's support in in this election. And, and, and what I mean by that is. Most people would say that one of the reasons that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler lost in their runoff elections against the two Democrats, Ossoff and Warnock, who won, was because Perdue's, I mean, because Trump himself suppressed the vote 
uh, by continuing to complain about the fraud in Georgia's election. And yet now we have David Perdue, the loser, uh, turning to Trump as his savior in the governor's race, George. So that's the thing that I'm sort of still watching. Um, Trump, <laughs> Trump can steal Georgia away for Democrats again. Um, and it really depends on what the tenor of the race between Purdue and Kemp looks like, like the day after the primary. Um, because I'm still wondering if Purdue has sour grapes, claims that, oh, this one was a, an act of fraud, too, and I should have won, and then effectively tells his voters to stay home in November because Kemp can't be trusted. Like in a in a close race, that kind of defection amongst Republicans will cost Kemp a reelection. Um, and uh, I mean, things look really ugly and nasty between the two of them. Yeah. At least like a couple <laughs> of months ago, uh, I've got to imagine that's going to start up again unless someone like David Ralston gets the two of them in a room and says, hey, uh, you're going to screw this up for everybody if you don't figure out how yeah, to you know, be nice. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I suspect that's an unlikely scenario. But, Margaret, uh, you published a really terrific piece that really speaks to all of this, and and uh, I want to talk with you about it. Yeah, Craig Nelson uh, wrote a piece about an event at an, a, uh, a breakfast, a Republican Party uh, breakfast down on the coast, which featured both David Perdue and incumbent Congressman uh, Buddy Carter. And one of the points, of course, that the piece makes is that Buddy Carter was in a slum, somewhat awkward position there. He hasn't endorsed anybody. Here's Perdue trashing Kemp at the breakfast, Buddy Carter trying to keep his head down. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that this is this is a real weakness for for David Perdue all throughout Georgia. You have establishment Republicans across the state who have either uh, endorsed Kemp already or who are keeping their heads down and trying to remain neutral somehow and to see who who the winner is in the bare knuckle fight that is going to be the gubernatorial primary. So we had a taste of it here in in Chatham County last weekend. Um, the Chatham County Republican Party had a had a, what a, was uh, a regular breakfast event, and David Perdue was there as the keynote, and um, Buddy Carter, our first district representative, um, also attended. And it, it was um, it was pretty spectacular to see the um, the, the ways in which um, Representative Carter was trying to keep um, his tightrope between um, between. I don't know, sort of coming out in support of everybody and and not trying to um, offend anyone at the same time. It's very hard when you're in a room um, where people have shown up in, uh, you know, detailed custom cars that um, that that have Trump memorabilia and stickers on outside of of this um, very well-known um, breakfast place in Savannah. It's very hard when people are reserving uh, the greatest cheers for the 32nd Trump spot that was played before David Perdue spoke um, that, that just spent um, half a minute denigrating Governor Kemp. It's very hard if you're someone like Buddy Carter or, um, um, or any of the other establishment Republicans in the state house to, to, um, to maneuver this, this thicket. But what we can say right now is that people, without going out on the stump for either one of these two candidates for, for Georgia's governor, we, we do know that on paper, more people have endorsed Kemp than, than Purdue. 
Um, Bernard, I've got to get to break, but I want to take up one last part of this before we do. Um, in his article, Craig Nelson uh, says, and I'm, he doesn't have any, any uh, direct quotes, but he says the people like Buddy Carter are hoping that the poll gap between Purdue and Kemp remains large so that they don't have to take sides and that, in fact, the Republicans will become really concerned, people like a Carter, if this gets down to being just a couple of points one way or the other, at which point they're going to be getting pressure from Purdue and Kemp to weigh in on this race. To me, that makes great sense, Bernard. Yeah, it makes sense to me as well. I think that this is part of the story of the modern Republican Party, too. You know, when Trump was on the ballot in 2020, a lot of Republicans said, well, maybe not first choice, but, you know, this is the person that we're going to support. And, you know, the story is when they're forced to actually make a choice, uh, they know they're going to alienate someone. They're going to alienate some subset of voters. So to the extent to which they can avoid that um, is to their benefit. I think it's especially to their benefit in November. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. And we, when we come back, I want to turn to uh, some action down at the state capitol and then move on from there. You're listening to Political Rewind. Uh, Karen Owen, Margaret Coker, Bernard Fraga, and George Chidi join me for today's Political uh, Rewind. Um, Margaret, uh, we had another bill in the uh, legislature, this time on the Senate side, that uh, injects the state more directly into our schools than we've typically seen in the past. I'm talking about Senate Bill 588, which is a measure that apparently, from from what observers say, really uh, just confirms what's already basic practice in the state school by the state school board. It essentially uh, confirms the public's right to attend school board meetings, and it says. Who, people who complain, they can record, the public can record those uh, meetings. It says that if people believe they were shut down uh, because they had a complaint or a protest they wanted to make, they could take that as a complaint to uh, Georgia Superior Courts, where school boards could have to pay attorney fees and other litigation costs. All of this because Senator Butch Miller, who's running for lieutenant governor, of course, says this, quote, we've seen parents treated unfairly by boards of education because of their political views or disagreements, and they've been arrested and barred from attending future meetings simply by voicing their concerns. Um, Margaret, what's of course ironic about this is that most of those disruptive school board meetings have been from those who oppose mask mandates, who oppose so-called critical race theory. The disruptors seem to be from Butch Miller's side of the aisle. (laughs) Yeah, and um, Butch Miller's side of the aisle also um, likes to paint themselves as a party or a block within a party that um, support uh, law and order. You know, mask mandates were part of a statewide order in Georgia for a very long time, but without going too far down um, down that rabbit hole, I will say that um, you know one thing to everyone to keep clear about as as um, the politics of outrage overtake us in this election year is that of course we Georgians, no matter what county we live in, we are responsible for electing our school boards. So those people who represent us are. Um, 
should be there to to serve us as parents of children, but everyone else um, in the county as well. There is a very valid way already in the state of Georgia to get rid of people on the school board you don't like, which is vote them out and vote someone else in. Now, if we can't uh, agree as Georgians about rules of decorum and how to how to participate in in meetings um, constructively and interactively, maybe we do need new laws. I'm not quite sure that this one, this Senate bill, is is the way forward. Because in fact, as we all should know as Georgians, we have incredibly strong sunshine laws here. We have incredibly strong laws already on the books about how citizens can um, hold their government responsible, how we can access um, public uh, records, and also um, interact in public meetings. But what I find here um, in coastal Georgia, as we are going about holding our elected officials responsible, is that there's not a lot of money in counties um, to hire people to process public records requests. There's not a whole lot of money um, for, for people to take time out of their already busy schedules as civil servants to help um, help citizens um, have an interactive uh, uh, relationship with local government. And as we've already discussed, if we have a state budget that no longer can support uh, you know, a professional class of civil servants, those things become harder just on a day-to-day basis for everyone yep. in the trenches here. Okay, Bernard, ironies seem to abound on today's show. <laughs> Yesterday, we played a soundbite from Governor Kemp. He was responding to uh, comments that Stacey Abrams made about uh, Kemp being either inept or lazy in refusing to take action on mask mandates in schools. The governor's response to that was, apparently Stacey Abrams doesn't believe in local control. Um The irony, of course, is that these measures like this one that we're talking about now are all about the state imposing itself over the local control of school districts and schools. Well, you know, it's just unfortunate. I think what you're seeing right now is an attempt to, in some ways, uh, I mean, hopefully not literally, but weaponize, you know, differences of perspective uh, for political gain. Um, but also weaponize, you know, I think what are, are frankly, you know, legitimate disagreements. I mean, I think everyone should have the right to voice their opinion at, at a meeting. And that's, you know, as, um, you know, opponents of these measures indicate that's already enshrined in, in existing law. But I think it's about doing it in a respectful manner, not turning it into a situation where, you know, it's an opportunity for people to spread disinformation, personal attacks, and certainly instigate some kind of, uh, you know, physical, essentially violence against uh, you know, are, are, again, our public servants, the people that we elect um, to serve us. So, again, I think it's really unfortunate that it's gotten to this point. Um, I know emotions are running very high related to especially, you know, mandates, the pandemic, et cetera. But I think that we, again, need to be able to resolve these disputes in a respectful manner that allows individuals to voice their opinion without impinging on the ability of our public officials to do their job. George? George, are you muted? Yes, I am. I'm sorry. So the the thing I'm looking at is the, the, there were a couple of arrests in Gwinnett County uh, where two women were arrested. But the things they were arrested for at a school board meeting, they're going to get arrested for again if it happened. Like they tried to one person tried to walk through a medical metal detector, rushed through a metal detector. She had scissors in her purse, like. Police officer tried to take the scissors away, and she wrestled this with the scissors with the police officer. Like, 
you're, you're going to get arrested when you do that. Like when, if there's a, if there's a local ordinance that says that you've got to wear a mask in the building and you don't wear a mask in the building um, and you're asked to leave and you refuse like a seemingly lawful order by a police officer, you're going to get arrested. And nothing about the bill that we just saw pass, like, or at least, you know, out of a chamber is nothing's going to change any of that. Um, this, this, the, the political reaction to all of this is, is really about upholding the anger on the right. Um, it's validating that anger. And I actually think that that's kind of dangerous right now, politically, because um, I think it's going to encourage violence. Um, Karen, let me let me add one element to this and then get you to weigh in. Um, so one of the things that Bush Miller said in supporting this measure and advancing this bill uh, is that he was disturbed by the fact that the Justice Department was now branding some of those who came to school board meetings with concerns about mask mandates and, and, and other things um, as terror, domestic terrorists. And the reality is that Merrick Garland last September, in writing a letter to schools across the state saying, look, the federal government is here to help you if you have disruptive school board meetings, if you need our help, let's brainstorm how we can change that. And in fact, in that letter, the letter does equate some of the actions to, quote, domestic terrorism and hate crimes. It strikes me that language gives people like Butch Miller an opening. It does, and I think that it just shows how, through this time, the federal government, which has been able through other mechanisms through law enforcement to be involved to protect, you know, members who are public servants, that is not new. But heightening that language to domestic terrorism, of course, is going to raise the red flag of the other parties. Um, People who are saying that you're targeting us and you're actually going after us, not because we're having a conversation over a policy related to COVID mandates or, or anything else, but because we just have a different political feeling. And, you know, as we've talked about here on this panel before, and especially now, as I think about it as a political scientist, like we encourage, we want the public to participate in democratic republic. We want them to be at school board meetings. We want them to be at the legislature talking to their representatives about policies. However, we've lost civility in that conversation. And I think it stems from our political leaders not being civil to one another and engaging in debate. It turns personal and it turns, you know, and so our public is seeing that. And then they're engaging in the same type of behavior, which we need to go back and say, open dialogue means we have maybe different opinions, but we need to walk through this together and talk about it and not be disrespectful to one another. All right. Um, let's do this. Why don't we take our final break of the show today and we'll come back with a lot more to talk about on today's edition of Political Rewind. Bernard Fraga, because I think it's fair to say that one of your major areas of research is on um, racial and ethnic politics, uh, how groups uh, 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 group identity in, uh, uh, is involved in electoral politics and the like. Uh, I, I'm mangling how I'm saying that, but I think I've got it basically right. I really think it's important that we take advantage of your presence today to ask you about what's happening with President Biden 
And the fact that he is getting more and more criticism for what appears to be his refusal to overturn some of the egregious administrative actions the Trump administration took in regard to immigration. I think the one that comes to mind first is Title 42 border expulsions, which essentially established the remain in Mexico policy that Biden said during the campaign he would get rid of. And now the administration is in court upholding uh, uh, those remain in Mexico policies. Yeah, that's right. You know, this is one of the kind of most contentious and complicated issues that the administration is facing, at least with regard to kind of transitioning from the Trump administration to to the current administration, the Biden administration. You know, when Biden was running for office and as you know, his supporters and all the Democratic primary candidates mentioned as well, you know, they constantly hammered the president, the former president for his immigration policies, child separation, you know, these other things that are, are now, to some extent, continuing under the Biden administration. And the administration is having to defend, again, some of the actions that the Trump administration took, but they're taking the side of the, the Trump administration in those court filings, in those proceedings. And it's confusing a lot of people. But again, you know, similar to our initial discussion, we have to remember it's an election year. And frankly, for the president, for the administration, for kind of uh, the majority, I guess, of the Democratic Party as well, in terms of elected officials, they just don't want to deal with the issue of immigration right now and risk a backlash that will hurt them in the midterms. And for a lot of advocates, they're having to choose between kind of standing behind their principles and, frankly, the campaign promises that the administration had versus working to make sure that this issue stays off of the agenda and can't be used in Republican attacks. Bernard, um, I, I think it would be reductive, it would probably be a mistake to assume that Hispanic voters look at immigration as one of the main issues they uh, uh, put forth in terms of how they choose their, their who they're voting for. But, it, but we also see that, that there are uh, that Hispanic voters who at one point could be counted on as being more reliably Democratic than Republican are starting to really sour on this administration, yes? Yeah, this is, again, one of these, you know, complicated situations with the, the Democratic base, right? You know, what we saw in 2020 was that across all racial and ethnic groups, the primary concern was COVID, obviously. And related to COVID, especially the economy and the potential impact of mandates and shutdowns on the economy. For Hispanic and Latino voters in particular, they were extremely concerned, especially in the border regions of Texas and in Florida and other places where Trump had a huge surge in support among Latino voters in particular, they were very concerned about the potential economic impact of kind of COVID-related shutdowns. And they weren't as concerned about Trump's immigration policy or immigration in general. Trump also didn't focus on it as much in the 2020 campaign. So I think, again, it says that, you know, the administration doesn't see kind of taking a very strong stand opposing the Trump administration policies as a political winner, even for that key constituency, Latino voters, that, in theory, should be the ones most conducive to the kind of democratic mainstream message. Karen? Well, this is a midterm election, and so most voters have a very, you know, retrospective type of look. What has happened to me in this last year, and what is the administration that's currently in power doing to help my life and make the nation feel, everyone around us feel better? And so for any type of group of voters, Hispanics, you know, black voters, all of us, we're looking at where we sit right now. And I think the pocketbook issues 
are going to resonate the most in this upcoming election. And Democrats are going to have to answer to what they're doing with the economy. And Republicans are going to run on a platform that they're going to handle the economy differently, right? Or they're going to just keep battering the message that the Democrats cannot handle it. And I think for Hispanic voters in particular, it is going to be about the economy in many ways. Immigration will be important if it resonates that there's issues now at the border more or policies that are hurting their families that they're trying to get here or different things like that. But I think it goes back again to pocketbooks. What is happening with gas prices? How can I feed my family with rising prices continue? Those things really will affect how voters look at their candidates in November. You know, uh, George and then Margaret, uh, one of the things that I'm, I was listening to Bernard uh, talk about the fact that in Washington, people just don't want to deal with immigration is um, it's because of the long history of failure to uh, craft a comprehensive immigration reform package that Democrats and Republicans could agree upon. Uh, we go back way, way back. I mean, Democratic, Republican administrations, uh, you know, certainly George W. Bush's president, who won, I think, about a third of the Hispanic vote in, in his, I think, first bid for the White House. Uh, he couldn't get it done. Obama couldn't. Nobody can get this done, George. So maybe it's not a surprise that people in Washington would rather turn their back on it. I think I think this failure, frankly, is uh, it's, I would I would call it shocking, but I think it is uh, I think it's part of the broader partisan divide um, where it's not just immigration. There are some really basic things across the environment, across other regulation, across drug prices, like things that are really popular with the public that just don't get done because there's no partisan advantage to be gained by either side. Um, people want the fight. And the irony here is that I think that Democrats in particular are being uh, are are going to cough up their electoral future over this specifically. Not just not so much immigration itself, but its failure to listen to Latino voters. Um, I think that there's a lot of taking of for granted that Latinos mm. are going to be voting for Democrats basically forever because, oh, look at the evil Republicans and their immigration stance. Um, but I don't think that's happening. And I think the stuff that happened in South Florida and in South Texas, as Bernard had mentioned, with uh, a shift of Latino voters into, uh, into the Republican column, um, there's this belief that demography is destiny for politics and that Democrats are eventually just going to take over because uh, demographically this the country is going to become less white. And I don't think voters are going to put up with this sort of thing this way for much longer. Margaret? I'm going to go back to um, the, the point that Professor Owen was making about economics. And, you know, there's a lot of intersectionality between social issues like immigration and economics and America's economic health. Here in Georgia, you know, companies, agricultural companies rely on immigration labor to do a lot of different things, whether it is keep um, chicken plants um, up and running at full capacity, picking blueberries, picking pecans. 
companies over the last several years have become more activated in in political um, topics and and political policies that that they shied away from before in the past. And I think that immigration is one of these wide open spaces that companies can move into, both on an economic perspective and just a social moral perspective as well. Immigration is important to the American economy. Immigration is important to American communities and American families. And we have to get beyond these policies of politics of division and outrage and think about holistic solutions and uh, more big company uh, voices in this debate, I think will only be helpful. Yeah, you know, I think if there's one lesson to be learned from many of our discussions today, it's that when politicians listen to people and actually talk to people about what they're concerned about, what they need, right, then we can make progress and actually help people in their everyday lives. I think it's the same for issues like immigration, for what Hispanic voters want or don't want. You know, they're concerned about putting food on the table, and companies are concerned about having workers, especially given the current situation with difficulties in hiring. So, I mean, the idea that, you know, immigration reform can be completely decoupled from the economic situations, of course, you know, I think it's an excellent point um, that was just made about the fact that these are very closely linked in Georgia and other places. But, you know, more broadly, Politicians need to not take for granted and not assume what voters want. Instead, listen to what they have to say and hear those concerns. Um, all right. Bernard Fraga, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. Um, you know, once again, there was an issue I wanted to get to today. We'll put it off for tomorrow's show. And that was this Washington Post deep dive into what happened up in Floyd County, which had a nonpartisan election board up there. And yet, as a result of the new election laws, SB 202, uh, we're able to turn over the entire board, make it a Republican-leaning board. And the Post dug into it as an example of what's happening across the country uh, to uh, many local election boards as they come under the sway of the fake election theory of the 2020 presidential, uh, presidential election. We'll try to take that up on tomorrow's show. So, Bernard Fraga, George Chidi, Karen Owen... Uh, 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 Margaret Coker, thank you so much for uh, being with us on today's show. Um, we'll be back again with a brand new show, of course, tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, our newsletter is out, the brand new Political Rewind newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday, comes right to your inbox, is there. Um, I tried to take a look at what I think are the interesting and important stories in state political news and sometimes national news. But every now and then I try to throw in something that uh, may be a little more fun. So if you subscribe to the newsletter and look at yesterday's, um, you'll probably get an answer to why I thought I should have a Dolly Parton video at the end of the newsletter, something fun for you to listen to. So just go to gpb.org uh, slash newsletters and you'll find it there. That's it. We're out of time for today's show. Uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistaws, Jesse Neiswanger, thank you so much for the work you do every day behind the scenes to make this show work. I'll see you all again tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.